the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, once said, Without question, the material world and your everyday needs distract you from living meaningfully. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Wednesdays at 2 p.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. Hi, and a very good afternoon to you. It's wonderful to be in your company this afternoon. It is Wednesday. It's just gone to 10 to 11, in fact, 11 minutes past two on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon here in Joburg and coming to you live, albeit remotely, on Chai FM, and it is Judaism 101.9. Today, I'd like to speak to you about uh, what is coming up because there's a lot of exciting stuff coming up in the Jewish calendar over the next while. And uh, perhaps we'll unpack them uh, briefly one at a time, but then spend some time focusing on one of the main ones. And if we think about it, well, that main one is something very, very significant in the structure of the Jewish calendar and something very significant in (coughs) our lives, actually, and in our build-up to everything that happens throughout the year. What I'm talking about is that over this coming Shabbat, we are going to be reading the first of four special parshiot, four special Torah readings that take place. No, they're not in a, an absolute sequence of one week after the other. Don't get nervous. But there are four special parshiot that happen every year before Pesach. And yes, it is a reminder of the fact that Pesach is coming. But interestingly enough, two of them are before Purim and two of them are between Purim and Pesach, which is a month. So we've basically got six and a half uh, seven weeks to go uh, kind of thing when we think about um, the structure of uh, the entire uh, calendar. We're sitting today towards the end of the month of Adar Harishon, of the first Adar. We're coming up to Rosh Chodesh Adar Sheni, which is going to be next week on Thursday and Friday. And here on this coming Shabbat, we therefore begin on the Shabbos before Rosh Chodesh Adar, the proper Adar, or the Adar in which Purim is contained, in that, on that Shabbos, we read a special Parsha, which means we're going to have our regular Sedra, our regular Torah reading, which is read from the sequence of Parshiot, of Sedras that we're reading every Shabbos, and this week we will be reading the Parsha of Vayakel, the second last of the five Parshiot of the segments that deal with the construction and the accounting of everything that went into the establishment of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle in the desert. Parshat Vayakel, read this Shabbos. We're going to take out a second Torah, and from that second Torah, we are going to read the beginning of Parshat Kitisa, which we actually read last week, so now we're not going backwards, but this is a special um, message about the shekels, about the half shekels. Well, perhaps you had a challenge today as to what you wanted to listen to on the radio, where you're going to tune in to uh, this uh, show, or are you going to listen to the budget speech? Well, the budget speech is taking place in a very, very auspicious and propitious time from a Jewish point of view, because we're talking about the Jewish budget. We're talking about how to budget from a Jewish point of view and to make sure that we not only pay our taxes, but that we pay the taxes to the temple. In other words, the forerunner of a system of tzedakah, of charity, 
which had to be given not only to poor people, but actually for the support of our public institutions and support of our spiritual life. All of those things were part of the embit of what we call tzedakah, charity. So charity is not necessarily only uh, for the poor, as we know, defined by our many, many different organizations within the Jewish community. It is for everything that has to do from a communal uh, perspective, our uh, shuls, our community centers, our yeshivot, our old aged homes, etc., etc., etc. And then, of course, of, of course, charity to the poor, organizations that collect um, uh, tzedakah funds aren't always only necessarily for the poor. And so we know this as a structure of Jewish giving. And so we have this Parsha of Shekalim, dealing with what had to be given by each and every person, a half a shekel that had to be given to the community, to the communal fund, which paid for all the communal sacrifices, for instance. Everything was brought on behalf of the community was paid out of this fund so that everybody had like an equal stake, an equal share. Oh, stake is good when you're talking about animals, I guess. But an equal share in the... Things that were done on behalf of the community in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, and then later on in the temple. And it became an established thing that it had to be given. These half shekels had to be given every year in order to be able to start off the year correctly. They had to be given by Rosh Chodesh Nisan. They had to be given by the month of Nisan, which comes up after the second Adar. So we're five weeks away from that. But... Um, we uh, had the system in the times of the temples that the Sanhedrin and the uh, courts would start putting out notices, notifying people, telling them that you had to pay your um, half-shekel amount. In other words, the taxes were due. It was kind of tax year end, if you wish, by the end of the month of Adar. And people wanted to get in early, and so therefore they did it in the earlier part of the month to show their enthusiasm for giving this. Unlike, of course, when you pay your taxes regularly, I guess, that we all wait until the very last minute. Yeah, it was a, a, a privilege to be able to give it in advance. And it's become the custom today that we still make sure that we give the half shekel before Purim, which kind of is in the middle of the month of Adar, in the Adar Shani that is coming up now as well. So we want to make sure that we have this all lined up correctly, that our taxes are taken care of, that our half shekels are taken care of, and that our tzedakah is all correctly apportioned before we come to the system of the Chagim of the festivals. And the month of Nisan was that month of birth, that month of regeneration, of renewal, and that month of our people becoming a people, a nation, and so on. And so we want to make sure that these things were all sorted timeously, that they were done in advance. Of course, this Shabbat, therefore, is also Shabbat Mavarachim. It is the Shabbos on which we will bless the new month of Adar Sheni, of Adar Bet, which, as we said, will start on Thursday and Friday, although uh, the first day, of course, is the last day of the month of Adar Rishon. The second day being Friday will be the first day of the month of Adar Sheni, or some call it Adar proper, and we therefore have kind of a triple header on this coming Shabbos. The regular Parsha, Vayakel, the, the second one, which is Shkalim, where we start reading about the giving of the half shekel, and then, of course, the uh, third dimension of the uh, of the weekend of the Shabbos is this idea of 
making sure that we correctly bless and look forward to because we've reached now in a sense the halfway mark in the middle of these two adars going into adar sheni and of course we have said adar we're halfway through a period of great joy for the jewish people and now getting down to the real emphasis and the real push of joy in the build-up to purim which is followed a month later by pesach Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So as we mentioned, there were four special parshiot that were read and that are read each and every year in the build-up to Pesach. The first one, Parshat Shkalim. The second one, called Parshat Zachor. The fourth one, Parshat Para. And the fifth one, Parshat HaChodesh. Now, what are these parshiot all about? Well, the first one is um, a reading about the commandment to annually donate the half shekel to the temple, which we have mentioned already. The second one, Parshat Zachor, which is read on the Shabbos before Purim, is all about our obligation to annihilate the evil nation of Amalek. Of course, it was Haman in the whole Purim story, who was a descendant of Amalek, who was bent on the destruction of the Jewish people or, more accurately, bringing about a coldness, a uh, complete, cold, apathetic relationship with God that they wanted to try and thrust upon the Jewish people. Then there was Parshat Para, or there is Parshat Para, the third reading. This is all about the uh, ritual purification through the sprinkling of the ashes of the red heifer, in order to purify from contamination by contact with the dead or the dead body. This is the way of purification, Parshas Para. And then finally, Parshat HaChodesh, which is read on the Shabbos, that either precedes Rosh Chodesh Nisan, or as in this year is on Rosh Chodesh Nisan. This is all about the mitzvah of sanctifying the new moon, of setting up our calendar, and of the requirement to eat matzah and maror at the Pesach Seder. So, this actually, our sages tell us, is a step-by-step way of gaining some kind of personal redemption. This is the beginning of the redemption, in fact, when we think about Parshat Shkalim. How does it actually start? It seems to be quite strange that we start with the idea of giving charity, of giving tzedakah, that we start with this idea of having to give away money, that this is kind of in the process and the warm-up in the getting ready for the redemption that we're going to re-experience Pesach time, that this is kind of the first stage. If we dig a little deeper and we think about it in more uh, graphic terms and perhaps in more deeper, in, in deeper spiritual terms, perhaps we'll come up with some kind of an insight and some kind of an answer as to why it is that this idea of giving the half shekel of giving tzedakah, giving charity, that this should be a way of personal redemption. You know, if you think about it, um, when we extend a hand to a poor person, so we could feel that that's kind of exciting or maybe a little bit um, invigorating, and we feel good that we've done a favor to somebody else. But how is it personally redeeming us? How is this providing us with a a mode or a, um, a way of starting our own personal redemption. Well, if we think about the concept of us earning a living, 
each and every one of us, hopefully, has that as an agenda, certainly at some part of our lives, that we need to make a living. Yes, it's often been the criticism that perhaps when your daughter or your son comes home with a prospective marriage partner for the very first time, and uh, on most people's minds are how are they going to earn a living, or how does he earn a living? If it's a guy, how does she earn a living? What's their profession? What do they do? <coughs> we want to make sure that our daughters are going to be well taken care of if they're going to marry this particular fellow. So we want to make sure that he earns a decent living. But sometimes we forget to ask, does he live? Never mind that he makes a living. That's not everything. Does he actually live? But we do understand that in the structure of most of our lives, the concept of making a living, of providing a parnasa, a, a living for yourself and for your wife and your children, your family, in order to be able to pay your school fees and in order to be able to uh, pay your uh, medical bills, in order to make sure that your family has food on the table and uh, you've got a roof over your heads, etc. We know that this is not only something that is obligatory, but it's also a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to do that. But very often when a person gets involved in our work, in the marketplace, whatever it is that we're doing, we become entirely involved in it in such a big way that it becomes very often all-consuming and uh, sometimes to the neglect and the detriment of all else. We are really, really involved. We go to the office early uh, or the place of work. We leave late at night. We want to just make a little bit more. We want to be able to push a little bit harder to get things done uh, a little bit better. And so we work hard and we make sure that we're not only earning a living, but that there is some extra padding there, that there is an ability to go away on holiday, that there is an ability to afford some of the finer things in life, etc. And so therefore, we all understand this process and how it can become, and it very often is, all-consuming. But we certainly do understand that when I have a profession <coughs> or a way of making a living, it is something that I really immerse myself in and I understand and I value the payment that I get for it, whether I'm paid a salary or whether I earn dividends or whatever it is, I value it. I value it because I really believe and I really feel that I have earned it. It is something that I have put probably, hopefully, lave and nefesh. I have put in my soul and I've put in my heart and I've applied my head and I've got myself really um, involved in every fiber of my being in this particular pursuit and in this particular uh, way of making that proverbial living. Now, think about what happens when you take from that hard-earned cash, that hard-earned money, that hard-earned in income in which you invested yourself completely and deeply, and you say, you know what, I understand that this is something that not only is mine, but it actually can and needs to be used for others as well. It doesn't actually belong to me. I've been paid certain dividends for others. And in giving that away, we're actually giving of ourselves. We're giving of our hard-earned, because if, if you think about the coin or the coins or the notes or the, uh, the EFT or whatever it is today that we have and that we have at our disposal in order to transfer this monetary value to others, that number or that stuff, that substance, is what we have really put ourselves into. And it is something of ourselves. It becomes 
a re redemption within ourselves to be able to to say, you know what, I understand that the same way as this came, so more can come. And I understand that everything that I have is a blessing. It all comes because God has blessed me with it. And nobody can actually take away what is rightfully mine. And it doesn't actually all belong to me. God um, made me a custodian for certain funds that had to be given to others and things that had to be given away and certain taxes that needed to be paid for communal offerings of communal funds. And therefore, when I do that, it is actually extremely liberating. This is something of a stage of gula, of personal redemption. We can begin that personal redemption by not only seeing others, but by making sure that others are taken care of, that the things that don't directly benefit me personally, such as my own home or my own food or my own medical care, is taken care of for others in that way, I am actually liberating myself. And there's the long debate as to who it is that actually benefits more from a uh, donation. Is it the donor or the donee? And I think that the conclusion that everybody comes to is that the donor is the one who gets more out of it, who gets more value. Not only do you have the wonderful mitzvah, not only do you have the pride and joy that you've helped others, but in fact, you have a certain sense of great liberation in this action of being able to give to others. So the uh, clock is set or the whole system starts off with this idea of recognizing not only the need to give, but the action of giving. And this is something of paramount importance in our whole system of Judaism. If you want to know Judaism 101.9, uh, what is at the base of redemption, it is the ability and the action of giving to others to make sure that um, others are looked after and that community can flourish and that Torah can be learned in places uh, far and wide and that uh, uh, all the things that can benefit from your giving are able to flourish. This is something that is extremely, extremely liberating. And it begins our process of liberation, our process of freedom, our process of redemption that will build up with the coming weeks and leading all the way to the actual redemption that we re-celebrate Pesach time with our getting out from Egypt. Now, we have also thought about long and hard the idea of the fact that we give half a shekel. It's an amazing thing that the Torah specifies half a shekel. And if we think about it, that this is the basis of our holy contribution. It seems to run against the grain. It seems to go against everything that we've kind of learned about what we must do when we do anything for Torah, when we do anything for Kedusha, for holiness, anything that we do for God, for the community. And that is that we try there to do everything in a full sense. Give of yourself entirely. No half measures. Don't do it in a half um, system. Do it in a full system. Make sure you do it with a full heart. Make sure you do it with a full commitment. And give of yourself of your best. We've got to get the best stuff that we give uh, to uh, the community, to the shul, to God, to the poor, and so on. Don't do it in a way of half. So what is this system, therefore, that was established all the way back then? And what is the Torah trying to teach us by the idea that it should be a half. Well, perhaps here we have to dig down 
and look at the idea, the concept of the half shekel and where it comes from and perhaps where it's first mentioned in Torah. Well, the amazing thing is the first place that um, the half shekel is alluded to in the Torah is at the time of the marriage or the prospective marriage between Rivka and Yitzchak because there Eliezer, the representative, the shliach, of Abraham Avinu, of Abraham, goes to Haran. He carries with him certain gifts for the bride-to-be, um, who is, we know, Rivka. And he gives her certain gifts, and one of them is the weight of half a shekel. But we specify that it was something that was 20 geira. 20 geira was the value of a shekel. That was halved. And it doesn't specify that it was the number 10, but it rather specifies that it's the half. There had to be something about this half that was significant then. And we're told there by our commentators that this was an illusion. This was telling us that in the future, the way that Jews would be bonded one to the other, because here we're talking about the bond of marriage between Rivka and Yitzchak, between our father and mother, was that they came together each with the, they came together over this kind of symbol, this action of the half, the 20 that is divided in half, but Dafka having the concept of half. And we then see that it is actually spelled out in a similar fashion when it came to the giving of the half shekel, the chatzi shekel, the half shekel, which we know as well was 10 geira, but not always specified as being 10 geira, but rather this absolute. Um, denomination of being a half. And what is this actually all about? Well, if we think about it, the number 10 has great significance of wholesomeness in Judaism. There were 10 commandments. There were 10 utterances in the creation of the world. The idea of giving of 10 is the idea of giving your 10 powers that we have within our soul and the 10 attributes that we know that the Almighty has imparted to us through that neshama, through that soul. So the idea of 10 is a whole but then we also have to have the symbol of the half. And so perhaps um, we need to investigate a little bit further the real deep significance of this idea of a half and how important it actually is in these contributions that we give. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So what is this idea of the half shekel really? in uh, Judaism. And perhaps if we think about it in terms of marriage, it starts making quite a lot of sense. Because if we think about the way that we understand two people coming together in a marriage, is that there were two parts of a soul that was divided. We've got the idea, therefore, of the whole being divided in two. Each one of them has the ten powers of their soul, but when they come together, each one is only a half. The idea of them forming one unit again is through this system that we call marriage. And it's a beautiful, beautiful image for uh, couples when they are getting married, that what we're actually doing is each one bringing his and her half to make it into the one whole. And of course, marriage is between a, a man and a woman, between a husband and wife, is the symbol entirely of our 
marriage to God. It's an it's a, a metaphor for our marriage to God Almighty. When God married us, so to speak, at Mount Sinai, he took this people, after we were redeemed from Egypt, he took this people and he made us his wife. And as we come together as a couple, well, God says, I'll bring my ten powers and you bring the ten powers that I've invested in you. I'll give my half and you give your half. And as we give that, it comes together as a whole. And it's only in that way that it actually becomes completed. So it's all about an action of humbleness. It's an action of humility. It's an action of understanding that through this giving, I'm not only liberating myself, but I'm actually depicting in the power that I have, I am going to invest it fully. I'm going to give entirely in uh, whatever it is that I do with the neshama, with the soul, and with the individual that I am in giving it, in doing for others, and in making sure that community flourishes, that Torah is built, that mitzvot are performed, that poor people are fed, that all of those things are done. I'm giving it, but I do understand that it's an action at the same time that should never lead to any form of pride whatsoever. I'm not here to do this as a proud giver, but rather to do this as a humble giver. It is done in a way of humility, remembering at all times that I'm only a half. The half that I give uh, needs the other half uh, to come to the fore, whether it is other donors, other people in the community, or in our uh, analog rather, looking at our communion, our coming together with God Almighty. And so therefore, this idea of the giving of the half shekel is a deep and profound and important action that was done every year, not only to infuse within the people the idea of how they needed to contribute to the community, to get everybody to understand that each and every individual had a stake in the, uh, the, the, the the communal things in the community, in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, and in everything that it stood for, but much more so to understand that we are only half of the picture, that we are nothing, actually, if we do not have the input from Shamayim, if we do not have the input from God. The tabernacle could have stood there as a kind of a tent of some sorts, um, some kind of a structure of some sorts, but really it was nothing until God's presence filled that space. And therefore, the symbol of this half shekel is something very, very important, very beautiful, very profound, and um, fundamental to the way that we see ourselves in our interaction, not only in terms of our marriages, our interaction with the individuals that make up the other part of our souls, but with the community, and ultimately with God himself. And therefore, Shabbat Shkalim, this coming Shabbos, is of such great significance and importance. It is so liberating and at the same time so instructive and so uh, fundamental to our entire relationship with God, with the Almighty in our build-up to Purim and then Pesach, that we need to make sure that we are in Shul the Shabbos, that we read the Parsha Shkalim, we understand what it stood for and what it needs to stand for for us in our lives as well. Be back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. As we mentioned, the Shabbos Mavarachim, it's the Shabbos on which 
we bless the new month. God gave us a power to bless most of the months of the year. He himself takes care of the month of Tishrei, in which Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot fall, but we have the power to bless the month. Now, the idea, the concept of a blessing is that we have the ability to draw down and to ask God to provide a tremendous amount of input and a tremendous amount of spiritual upliftment for this month. So as we bless the month, we hope and we pray that the month will be filled with all the things that the month of Adar is meant to stand for. And the month of Adar, of course, stands for Simcha. Well, we've had one month of Adar uh, filled with Simcha. We need to now turn and face another month where there is heightened Simcha because the Simcha ante is, is, uh, it ticks up during the month of Adar Sheni because it's in that month that Purim is going to occur. The real concepts of Purim, the idea of every bad thing being turned around, the idea of every bit of negativity or, God forbid, of hatred or anything that has come along to try and unseat uh, the happiness and the happiness factor within our lives, this is promised to be turned around during the month of Adar. This idea of a change for the better, a change for simcha, a change for happiness, for joy, and that everything dark and bleak is actually turned into everything happy and light. And so that's what we pray for on this Shabbat. As we Commit to give our half shekel, to understand that it's only half, but it's got to be given in the fullest sense of the word with all the ten powers of our soul. As we come to the end of the construction of the Mishkan in Parshat Vayakil, and as we look forward to Rosh Chodesh at the end of next week, the Rosh Chodesh of Adar, where everything will be turned, hopefully, into goodness and into light and into happiness and joy with the advent of Purim, a few weeks later, we look forward to a great and wonderful Shabbat up ahead, a great rest of the week, which I'd like to wish you as well. And I look forward to being back with you same time, same place next week on another exciting episode of Judaism 101.9.